Hi, I'm TechCrunch Managing Editor Daryl Etherington. Thanks to Haya for stepping in while I got married last week. This is the TechCrunch Podcast, where we cover everything you need to know about the week's top stories in tech from the people who wrote them. This week, I'm talking once again with Taylor Hatmaker about her adventure into the metaverse at the MetaConnect event. And Haya Jankamps comes back to take the guest seat and talk about a Dutch court's ruling that employee productivity monitoring using webcams is a human rights violation. Before we get into all that, here's what else is going on in tech news this week. This week was Microsoft's big annual hardware event, but the Surface devices it revealed were relatively boring updates. One of their side announcements was the real star of the show, new software products that use AI image generation powered by Dolly 2. A new app called Designer will allow users to create fit-for-purpose images for sharing to platforms including Instagram, LinkedIn, and Facebook. Microsoft is adding some of its own AI smarts to the mix to help users create ready-to-share images from text prompts. Image Creator, on the other hand, will be accessible from the Bing Images tab or directly in the Microsoft Edge browser, acting more as a simple front-end for Dolly 2's API without any custom AI tweaks. More about this on TC from Kyle Wiggers. Netflix has revealed when its ad-supported $6.99 monthly plan will launch, setting November 3rd as the start date in the U.S. and select other markets. This ad-supported Netflix plan has been in the works for a while now, though the company had previously said that it would be made available only in early 2023. Some Netflix content from the paid service won't be available to ad-supported customers, however. Hulu, meanwhile, is raising its subscription prices, adding $1 to the monthly cost for ad-supported tiers and an additional $2 monthly for plans without ads. That means Netflix with ads is now $1 cheaper than Hulu's ad-supported plan. You can read more about both pricing changes from Lauren Forrestal on the site. Uber, Lyft, and DoorDash stocks all saw big drops earlier this week when the U.S. Department of Labor revealed proposed changes that would reclassify contractors as full-time employees in some key regards. Until now, this has been a battle fought mostly on a state-by-state basis, including through the high-profile AB5 and Proposition 22 regulatory measures in California. The draft guidance is now in a public review period, though it faces criticism from both sides already for not going far enough. More on this on TC from Harry Weber. I talked with Taylor about what it was like to be a floating torso in the virtual room for the MetaConnect conference. Hi, Taylor. How's it going? Hello. Pretty okay. Welcome back from the metaverse. I hope you had a fun time in it. It's in exhausting Mark's there. World. Happy to be back. <laughs> Been in there for a long time. It looks it looks exhausting. I think you talked about this in your article, but we all had like it was like a draw straw situation of like who's gonna get the headset out and get it going and like do all the stuff and the software updates and whatever is required to go into it, right? But you bravely volunteered and got it all going, so kudos to you for that. Thank but you. Uh, I'm very you brave. also got the reward. I did, which is the article, not the actual experience. <laughs> oh, I thought it was being on the podcast. That feels like a oh, <laughs> so many sure, rewards in the metaverse. <laughs> Yeah. So, I mean, for our listeners, in case they missed it, this week was Meta Connect, which is Meta's annual, now their only annual, really, conference or event or thing where Mark comes out and does a song and dance on a stage, although it's no longer a real stage. But yeah, the overt intent, I guess, would be to talk to developers who are interested in getting into metaversal stuff. But there's also a lot of other announcements and they kind of, well... Are there? Are there? You're looking skeptical. This is an audio podcast. There was an attempt at other announcements. Let's say that. (laughs) Yeah, this is my skeptical podcast face. Yeah, I mean, they announced new hardware. You know, I think Meta was in a weird position coming into this one. 
arguably they're often in a weird position because they're a weird company that does lots of shady stuff and makes people unhappy a lot. But um, mm-hmm. <laughs> there had been some reporting like leading up like the day before. I think it was Monday or like it might have been Sunday and Monday. I can't remember. I think the New York Times had a report that was like internally even no one is using Meta's VR hardware. Yes. No one is hanging out in the virtual worlds. <laughs> Meta's basically like forcing their employees to like enter the metaverse, you know, yeah. and interact in a professional manner. And it was just like a pretty devastating story. So I think for me, somebody who's followed Meta, formerly Facebook now for more than a decade, which is horrifying. I was kind of expecting them to like, you know, come back with some kind of retort in a way to be like, well, you right. said we suck, but we have this awesome exclusive game or something, you know, mm-hmm. and they just went a different direction because you know, they're meta. Yeah. I mean, that was the timing, you know, obviously on the New York times and, and the verge was the other, mm-hmm. the verge mm-hmm. reported first, the low adoption. And then the New York times had their it was the verge. great sort of overall look at, you know, that plus a bunch of other stuff around the metaverse efforts. Right. But yeah, it was like the anti curtain raiser, like typically, you know, PR companies, this is a little inside baseball for you oh. folks listening, but at some of these large tech companies, we'll try to see to sort of like a curtain raiser ahead of these events and they'll maybe select one outlet or something and do an interview with them and kind of like not tip their hand, but get into the thinking around what they want to do. And then they'll do, you know, seed executive interviews like after two, which they did. Meta did this time and, and actually made Mark quite available not to TechCrunch, but I mean, we... <laughs> it's cool. We're not mad. It's fine. <laughs> We're not mad. We knew what we knew what he would have said anyway. And, Kinda you know, yeah. nothing he said was a surprise. <laughs> but to your point, like, the tone of it was not anything that was like, not, you could, both things could be true. You could read those reports that came out that were very negative, and then you could see what, what Meta, uh, you know, announced or revealed. And it was like, yes, both of these things, one actually supports the other. In, in some ways, Meta's presentation, I think, supported a lot of the earlier reporting by omission, like you were saying. Like, they didn't really bring out, like, a big, huge, amazing game or, like, reveal any super blockbuster stuff that was like, oh, people are really, really invested in this and behind this and really excited about this, right? You know, the consensus is kind of like, you know, Meta bought Oculus. Oculus was a brand people could get excited about and they were for a while, you know, yeah. and then Facebook, Facebookified it. And now it's it's all Meta. And uh, Meta came out yesterday and was like, okay, so <laughs> we get, they, I mean, they didn't say this. This is kind of the subtext. You know, they're, they're just kind of staying the course. They're like, okay, so we're not generating a lot of excitement in the consumer space we're going to release this game on in vr that was like the hottest game ever two years ago you know they're yeah. releasing like among us for vr it's just like really like like i feel like that should be sailed but then they're and like that okay. was the most exciting though we were like <laughs> oh of. this is kind of exciting and that everything else was like uh. yeah i mean it'll <laughs> yeah. probably be kind of fun but there wasn't a lot for consumers there right so they're just yeah, like okay yeah. we're like quadrupling down on enterprise and that is just yeah. You know, not the exciting vision of the metaverse that a lot of people who probably think of gaming and think of, you know, more traditional social networks and stuff kind of moving into these VR spaces had in mind, if they were even paying attention to this at all, which is totally arguable. Right. And I, like, I think they were trying to point out some of the places where they see opportunity like fitness, right? But uh, although they're in their own problems there with the what within acquisition being challenged by the FTC, right? Am I, am I thinking of the right? Uh, you are. U.S.? Okay. I yeah. <laughs> I haven't checked in on that in a minute, but that was happening. Yeah. They're claiming that it's anti-competitive potentially for Facebook to acquire that company, which is the maker of Supernatural, one of the most popular fitness games or experiences on the Oculus. And it is quest. like a killer nope. app. Like that is an app. Like yeah. Facebook. Yeah. Facebook. Nope. Meta Meta needs <laughs> Meta needs killer applications for yeah. the metaverse. Like I need a reason. Like so that, you know, they send me the hardware. Like Meta 
you know, I have a review unit from Meta mm-hmm. and I open it and it's like, I think it's the onboarding that any normal consumer has, you know, you open the box and you're like, okay, I'm getting configured, whatever. But then you pop into it and they didn't even have games or things like super, like, you know, any of the fitness stuff preloaded onto it. So like the consumer experience previously, and I do think this changed in July. I think now it's shipping with Beat Saber, which is like a killer oh, app okay. for the metaverse. Yeah. But previously you just like open this thing, you put it on, you're like, this is kind of uncomfortable and you turn it on and then you're just in this like store and you're like, well, I don't, yeah. there's nothing in here for me to do unless I pay like, you know, 60 bucks or whatever for like an unproven thing. There needs to be more demos. There needs to be, you know, preloaded software. And I think they apparently just figured that out a few months ago, but like, it, it's just a strange experience overall. They really need to sell why anyone should be doing this at all. Why anyone should be, you know, participating in this kind of stuff in a different modality to begin with. Yeah, that's a good point. And it assumes a certain amount of enthusiasm already going in, right? Like in the way they used to do it, where it was like, okay, we know you know why you're here and you're going to go seek out something actively and then you're going to have that fun because you already are pre-informed about some of it. But that's like not the assumption to make if you really want to make it a mass market device, right? Which they seem to want to do. Some other companies and attempts have done really good at that. Like Valve did a great job with their onboarding experience, sort of like getting you into how to use it. I forget what it was called, but. Yeah, you can even make the onboarding fun. Like, I mean, you know, and and they've tried to do this with Horizon Worlds a little bit. Like you're walking around and you're like looking at billboards or whatever. And then you like play a little game, but it's not fun, you know? And like, you could make it super fun because at the end of the day, like VR is still really cool. I think that, you know, a lot of folks at TechCrunch yesterday published pretty skeptical stories where we're like, ugh. You know, Meta's mm-hmm. doing this in VR, but like a lot of us are actually pretty into new technology. You know, we want this stuff to yeah. be cool. So it's even more disappointing, I think, when you're like, why can't they get this right? I mean, I think we there's lots of reasons that we know why with Meta, right. but it's cutting edge technology. It's pretty fun. There are fun experiences in there to be had. So it's weird to have such a hard time getting people enthusiastic about that or bringing in new users into that experience. I mean, the hardware yeah, being super true. expensive doesn't help. That's like a whole other conversation, obviously, but no. Yeah, and the Quest Pro they announced fifteen hundred dollars. Like that is a massive outlay for what this can do right now, right? Yeah, and that's just going to be that high end device where you're like, okay, maybe if I'm like, I don't know, like what kind of like a some kind of like engineer or like somebody designing some kind of products in three D or something. I'm trying to think of like applications that are just like which is a tiny sliver of the that actual profession. Tiny, (laughs) tiny sliver are going to be people willing to do this who don't have like workflows that they're already super dedicated to. Yeah, so like that high-end device, I mean, you know, that that exists just like as a proof of concept of all the new technology they can introduce, I'm sure. But I just think Meta, again, has a fundamental misunderstanding about like what people want. Right. And like doesn't really even want to give it to them, I guess, is <laughs> yeah, how I feel. Yeah. Well, you, I mean, you experienced them delivering what they, I guess, imagined is a great experience in VR, right? Like they offered the opportunity to go and like have the, see the keynote in their Horizons app. And you did that. And it didn't seem like there. I mean, it's kind of all over it. Like you thought this was going to be fun for people. I mean, you had fun, but I don't think you had the fun that they intended you to have. Well, I don't even think it's supposed to be fun. At the end of the day, this is like, (laughs) I'm serious though. Like, okay, like, you know, I will say I had more fun Watching that, even though it was like a chaotic, haphazard experience, getting my headset charged, and then I like did have to push like 50 software updates and all this other stuff. And that's on me for not being ready in advance. But like, you know, it's like, it's kind of fun. I'm like walking around, you know, you're navigating VR with little joysticks and stuff. And it's like marginally more interesting than just watching the thing stream live. But like, it's very Facebook. It's like a utility, you hop on it and you're like, Okay, it, it looks pretty bland. It looks like a bland, normal kind of conference center. There's like the big floppy infinity 
blue infinity sign logo, like kind of hovering <laughs> ominously in the center of this courtyard, <laughs> which I just walked straight through. And then, you know, you go into like a room like you would in a normal conference center. And it like had the blandness of going to a conference, particularly going to like a <laughs> meta conference. I have been to this conference before, Wacky yeah. Windows Oculus Connect. And I mean, it was a little bit more flavorful then because it hadn't been totally Facebookified, but there is like a blandness to... You're like, I don't, why do you have sound dampening walls in this uh, virtual... Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's just mundane. You're like, okay, it could look, it could look like anything in the world. Yeah. Like imagine yeah. if like Epic Games designed this, for example, this is kind of one of the, always the competitors I come back to. I mean, arguably not a direct competitor, but it's complicated. Like if Epic Games is like, hey, we're going to have, we're going to have an event in the metaverse. You're going to go in, there's going to be like psychedelic rainbow unicorns you're riding to the conference. You know, it's going to be wild. And like meta is like, let's just make this as tame and bland as possible because they want to appeal to everyone because that's their whole thing. And in doing right. that as a company, they basically have no identity of their own, like visually or anything else. Even the product yeah. itself, I have a whole rant about the hardware. The hardware design is just so calm and tame and bland. And it, it's nice, it works well, you know, it's born out of the Oculus hardware, obviously, but there's just no personality. And Meta's right. software experiences in the metaverse feel like that too. Horizon Worlds feels the same way. You're like, this is cool, but there's like nothing going on. There's no edginess to it. It's not exciting or fun, you know? And I think they're obviously gonna have to lean really hard on developers and really convince cool developers to build interesting experiences for, you know, the metaverse. Yeah, I mean, it's the, there's like something so sad about that when you're talking about that. Like it's it sounds like just a profound lack of imagination. It's like, oh, I envision the future. And you're like, okay, cool. I mean, it looks like it's a beige room, but it's not really there. It's in your headset. It's like, wait, what? No, you had you had anything. You had infinite resources. You had all the time. Like, That's the weird thing about uh, the smartest minds. You know, they're always like, they're, I mean, you know, and Mark Zuckerberg's talking about innovation and talking about the next platform and all this stuff. And that's, that should be exciting. But of all the companies yeah. to be, putting out this hardware, all the companies to have bought Oculus when they did, you know, Meta, formerly Facebook as a company, is not known for its imagination. It is known as right. being like a utility platform where you go and you connect with people. And it's it's like, we're all on it, kind of like how we all have to, use, you know, we used to all have to use landlines. Like that was just a technology yeah. that we had and we had to use. It's not a perfect analogy, but, you know, it's a utility. It's not inspiring. They're a company that copies other people's products. They're just really insecure, I think, about their own vision as a company. And that yeah. comes across a lot in a lot of their products, in my opinion, anyway. Yeah. I, it's very interesting to have the company like that building something so immersive, too, right? I feel like it exposes it even more because it's like you're literally immersed in their conception of what that is. Mm -hmm. And so once you're within that, I mean, to an extent, that's already happening on Facebook, right? Like it's quite immersive as far as a 2D scrolling, you know, website experiences. They want you to be there and not anywhere else. But to actually do that and then immerse you in it, it's like, we're going to see it all. We're going to see it in stark relief, your flaws and, you know, the the lack of inspiration or imagination or whatever else is there, it's going to be exposed. Like it's your company DNA writ large, right? Yeah, it's strange. I uh, Maybe this stood out to me all the more because over the weekend I was at TwitchCon. I had some meetings down there and I like popped in and out of the conference center with, you know, 30,000 of my closest acquaintances. <laughs> um, <laughs> It's just like, that is a company that like, they are like, hey, we are tapped into what young people want and we are just delivering it to them left and right. Like, yeah. It's just like a smorgasbord of like cool shit that people 30 and above, like don't understand very well. That Which is just Fortnite. That's just, you just described Fortnite basically, right? It's like, oh, look at all this cool shit. We just threw it in here. It's a blast. And then people are yeah, like, having like, a great it's, time. Yeah. It's just, yeah. it's maximalism, you yeah. know, and it's kind of the opposite, both visually and 
I think vision wise of something, mm-hmm. something like Facebook, like meta, you know, like that's a company that's just like, they are like, Hey, we know what young people want. We're giving it to them. And everyone is so excited about the product, which is ultimately owned by Amazon. And that's something that makes it wild. Oh yeah. Nobody, I always forget. <laughs> and yeah. And so does everybody else. Like, you know, at this event, it's yeah. like, you know, 16 year old kids walking around who are like cooler than like anyone you've ever seen in your life. And like, you know, there's just, like yeah. streamers with like Lambos or whatever. And you're like, this is wild. And everyone is just stoked to be celebrating this product that's ultimately owned by Amazon, which is like, yeah. you know, is more like a Facebook, more like a meta. Yeah. So, and you know, I think if meta had kept the product more separate from their identity, they could have yes, pulled something yes. like this off and they could have kept some of that early enthusiasm for the Oculus brand because at least they had gamers and early adopters who were like, oh, we like this. You know, that guy's kind of an asshole. And they probably didn't think that, lucky, <laughs> but like, you know, people were excited. It was like, yeah. Kind of had a different image at the time, but they kind and of they, smooth everything over. They exactly. meta meta-ify it. Yeah, they, they tweak it to gr- to beige, right? Like it's like yeah, adjust exactly. all the dials until it's beige, right? Yeah, but we'll have they, a product that works perfectly for gamers, for young people, for enterprise consumers, for you know, it's just like that doesn't exist. It's not gonna work no. how they want it to. And meanwhile, Twitch is like Megan the Stallion is gonna <laughs> twerk on Matt. Master Chief. <laughs> People are like, this is great. Like, you, you can imagine yeah. me saying the same words for like a different company's conference and it being like, this is the worst shit. This is so dumb and forced and lame. And yet Twitch like pulled it off and people were just generally really thrilled and amused with that and like celebrating it. Right. Yeah. And a company like TikTok probably could have done that too. Yeah. I don't, I don't yeah. know that community quite as well, but that's a brand that young people are enthusiastic about. And again, Meta is extremely self-conscious about losing young people. Yeah. Cause when you lose young people, then you turn to enterprise software, I guess, yeah. which is what they're doing now. You know, it, like TwitchCon over the weekend, for example, like I didn't hear a single mention of virtual reality. I think there was like one session wow. Maybe that was like, I didn't even really understand what the session was. I didn't make it. It was something about building experiences for VR. But like, it is not something that people are talking about because people are participating in their own version of the metaverse already, which is, you know, everyone is just known by their handles. They're on Twitch all day. They're streaming. They're popping in and out of chat. They have their own memes and everything else. And everyone's just playing all of these virtual experiences that exist elsewhere. You know, they're not VR experiences, but just all kinds of stuff. Stuff like Fortnite, you know, stuff like Roblox, stuff like Minecraft. There's so many social gaming experiences already with established communities established worlds, you know, and those are really fun. Right. And people really like them and they're already there. So, you know, I don't know what Meta is going to do to lure people to its platform, but I think it's going to have a tough time. I think so too. I think my big takeaway from that event was that they want it too much and it's going to scare everybody away from it forever. Maybe Twitch will be the one to just swoop in and be like, it's already here. Basically, we'll just do a little zhuzhing left and right here and then there you go it's a metaverse ready made or whatever right yeah there are a lot of companies that are pretty far ahead in terms of like the stuff that i think matters more than the hardware aspect you mm-hmm. know it's like weird that meta was like actually we're a hardware company now you know i think right. maybe they may have made the wrong bet which is something they were really worried about i was talking about this in our in our internal chat earlier which exists yeah. and is very mysterious but you know for a long time i've covered facebook slash meta for a long time and there were years where mark zuckerberg would get on these Investor calls and be like, I have made one grave mistake in my life. And that was not realizing how important mobile was going to be. Right. If you remember in the very early stages of Facebook, its mobile app was terrible. It mm-hmm. sucked. It was like broken. You could barely use it. And he was like, I, I vow to never make this mistake again. And so he just like said that for like years. And then he bought Oculus and he sees the next version, the next platform, the next modality for social technology in general as being VR. And I yeah. think there's an argument there, which I should probably write. And I'll probably feel that <laughs> if I don't make this a story now. But I think there's, there's an argument, and it is my argument, that the next platform might actually be social gaming, something like a much more loose, just virtual avatar-based worlds 
that are not hardware dependent um, yeah. because that's going to bring a lot more people in and it's all about the people to begin with. And again, that's the piece that Meta can never quite get right. Yeah, that's terrific. You definitely do have to write that article now. Um, and I'm going to let you go mm. do that right now. Mistakes were made. <laughs> but yeah, it's like, I mean, the headline is just Mark Zuckerberg has no chill and that's why he will miss the next major platform shift, right? Or something. Yeah, he just always cares about the wrong stuff, you know? He's just like, this is what the people want. And it's like, have you talked to a person? Like, go (laughs) talk to one. Get out there, man. Yeah, virtually. Virtually he's talked to us. We got to get him out of the metaverse. <laughs> I, I left yesterday and he was still in there and he looked haggard. He was looking rough. Someone needs to check up on him. Someone needs right. to give him a monster energy. <laughs> Thanks so much, Taylor. It's been great talking to you as always. And I'm sure we'll have you on again soon. Yeah, anytime. Next up, I'm talking with Hayayan Comps about a Dutch court's ruling that demanding employees turn on their webcams is a human rights violation. Hello, Haya. Welcome back. And thanks for filling in last week, too, by the way. Yeah, I hear you were off doing fun things. I was. I was getting married, which maybe the listeners <sighs> of this podcast, you might be hearing that for the first time. So please send monetary gifts to... <laughs> no, not revealing any private information, but... Congratulations. Yeah. I'm excited for you. Thanks. Great to have you on. And we're talking about something that probably people have personal feelings about given today's work environments. So do you want to give us a breakdown of what happened this week in this Dutch court? Yeah. So basically there was an incident where an American company based in Florida hired a person in Holland. And this person was asked to keep their webcam on at all times when they're working. Hmm. So eight to nine hours a day. And at some point they were like, you know what, I'm not going to do that. And they were pulled up in some sort of like meeting at work with HR and given like instructions for what to do. And they were like, I'm not doing that. Now, the interesting quirk is like if it was only the camera, I'd be like, okay, well, that's a little weird. But it seems like this company actually does a lot of tracking. Uh They do constant like screen monitoring. They do activity monitoring. Plus, presumably this person actually delivers some productive work. So they see the work coming out as well. Yeah. Yeah, so this person uh, said, you know what, I'm not into this. And he got fired. Mm. And he went to court. And the court went, well, you know, there's a 50,000 euro fine. He has to pay back wages and vacation time and all that kind of stuff. But the interesting thing was they pointed out that according to the court, this was actually a human rights violation. Wow. And that made me go, wait a minute. (laughs) That's interesting. (laughs) That is interesting. So, I I mean... There's so much about this. Just to start off, it's like, oh, yeah, it's, like you said, requiring someone to keep their camera on for nine hours a day. I think most listeners will probably agree with us in that it feels sketchy to, just mm-hmm. off the offset, right? But then adding in all those other things like screen monitoring or whatever else, and it's a telemarketing company. So there is, one would imagine, like you said, a deliverable, like a, probably a fairly concrete deliverable that they can more easily track, which is like number of calls done. Like those are typically recorded. Yeah. At a telemarketing company, right? So, yeah, and this guy uh, did inside sales. Mm-hmm. So, what I believe that means is upselling existing yeah. customers and receiving calls, right? He wasn't doing outbound, as far as I understand. And the person is anonymous in these court documents, so I don't actually know their name. But yeah, I, I thought it was really interesting to hear them bring <laughs> human rights into this. Yes, yeah, for sure. So, is it specifically around the camera? Is that the thing that they are saying is in violation of this individual's human rights, or? Yeah, so the EU has adopted something called the European Convention on Human Rights. And Article 8 of that is the right to respect for private and family life. And I have it in front of me here. Mm. Basically, they say that everyone has the right to respect for his private and family life, his home and his correspondence, and there shall be no interference on that. Mm. 
which basically means, look, you have a right to a private life. Now, if you are a bank teller, there will probably be a camera on you, right? right? To make sure you don't run off with money and to make sure that if there's a bank robber, they have some video of him. But I feel like in that circumstance, it seems perfectly fair in a way yeah. to have a camera on you. What they're having a complaint about here is like, look, this person is in their own home. Yeah, You know, there are people presumably in that home who don't have any sort of say in whether or not they're being videoed. And I don't know about you, I don't need to be on video <laughs> eight or nine hours a day. No. God, no, no, of course not. And I, I agree innately. I'm just like, and I also have the right not to have that happen. But you, it is an interesting distinction when you're bringing up that many hours a day. Many people in the professional work sphere are on video for that many hours a day, right? Or, or if not more, like depending on whatever their their shift is. But like the intention originally, there was like a clear separation. Like there was no such thing as the sort of work from home phenomenon when those human rights doctrines were drafted, right? When these conventions and protections were drafted. Essentially, yeah. it's like super interesting from a precedent perspective. And you wonder what else falls under that once you start to blur those lines, right? Because we mostly talk a lot about like other aspects of what happens when you blur the lines of working from home and, you know, working from offices and like, how do you manage uh, morale and whatever? Like, what tools do you use, right? But then what do you get into like rights, human rights and freedoms? Yeah. Like, that's not something I've seen thought about or explored very much. And now it's like being like it's happening. It's happening in law, in, in practical scenarios. Yeah. I mean, do you think that this is something that will be teased out further or will engender additional legal actions or anything like that? Well, I would be surprised if this was the first time this wasn't mentioned, right? right. I mean, it just happened to be, I saw a news story about it and I was like, hey, webcams, privacy, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that the court documents were public. And in one of my many weird skill sets is that I speak fluent enough Dutch that I can read court documents. Right. So I ended up going back in there and actually read the whole thing. And somewhere near the bottom on this 50-page document, <laughs> there was like, oh, actually, this is a human rights violation. I feel like they just dropped it in as a, like, yeah, obviously, as a matter of course. Right, right. But to us, from like American eyes, you'd be like, wait a minute, that is actually, human rights sounds very serious. Yeah, it does. It sounds very actionable. <laughs> yeah. Well, and this is wedged in this uh, document, European Convention of Human Rights. It's wedged between Article 7 which is no punishment without law, uh, right? And Article 9, which is freedom of thought, conscience, and religion, which would be our First Amendment, right? Yeah. And so you're like, wait a minute, those two things are very, very big things. And this mm. right to privacy, it's like, yeah, it makes sense if that's yeah. in the in the Human Rights Convention, which is actually accepted as law in most countries. Yeah, I mean, you're right. When you put it in that perspective, because those other two are, I don't think anyone would argue, or there's no kind of like, yeah, it's a priori. It's like, of course, these things are true, right? But when you bring that into it, it's like, oh, wait, this requires some teasing now, right? Which is perhaps not what previously was the case. I'm wondering if, and I don't know if you know this, but it just come to me, but like, does this the same kind of right to privacy that has allowed for people to ask Google to forget certain elements of their lives and search things or whatever, right? Because yeah. that was also, you know, decided in European courts. Yeah, totally. Mm -hmm. And I think that is exactly the kind of, if not this specific article, then these types of articles are used to defend that. And I think that mm -hmm. makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I mean, Europe in, traditionally has had a very strong sense of like, hey, you don't really have a business to snoop around in my, in my right. stuff. And I feel 
like in the US in particular, after the Patriot Act and various other like clauses that makes it possible to do large scale surveillance, that kind of stuff just doesn't really fly in Europe for those reasons. Yeah. Because the privacy thing feels like such a personal and inalienable right. Yeah, for sure. Now, I do think the other aspect of this is just kind of the practice itself. I, I doubt that this is actually that unusual, right? Especially right. for a company like this. And I do wonder, what is the discussion to be had, especially for tech companies of like where this line is? Because I feel like there's a kind of, um, there's a tiered system. I mean, there's always a sort of like a class system when it comes to employment and employers. But if you think about you know, us in particular, let's just use our example because that way we're not putting fingers at others. But like, we're very lax in terms of how we work with each other and we're a remote company and like, there's effectively no monitoring going on. Maybe there is, but I'm not privy to it. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> well, if my, you don't know, nobody does. Yeah, yeah. Maybe my boss's boss is watching and everything we do, but I have no idea, right? But like, that is like, we're fairly lucky in that, right? And the, yeah. whereas if you're a, a contractor, especially working on the kind of like that, raw edge of the technology sphere where, you know, content moderation or telemarketing. Well, or Amazon delivery driver. Yes, or Amazon you delivery know, There's driver. a lot of jobs. And I feel like there's actually, you mentioned a, a tier system between employer and employee, but I think, you know, there are professions and companies where the assumption is that you're going to deliver, right? Yeah. And I feel like if you are a software developer at a startup versus a software developer at Google versus a Amazon delivery driver or a contractor writer at TechCrunch, <laughs> right? There's a very broad spectrum yeah. between how much people trust you, essentially. Yeah, and, that's true. And how good your managers are. And I've worked with managers who absolutely wanted to know what I did every microsecond of every day. Yeah, same. And right. And it sucks. Mm -hmm. It really mm -hmm. sucks. And yeah. there is a paradigm shift that is happening, especially as people are allowed to work from home, I think, where some employers go, well, I trust my employees. They have deliverables. And as long as that gets delivered, cool. I don't really care how or when that gets done. Mm -hmm. And there are others who go, no, I want to know what you do every minute of every day because I don't trust you. Or if I don't spend all my time monitoring all my employees, what am I even here for? Kind of right, thing, right? It's right. like, it's a very uh, the office approach <laughs> to, uh, yeah. to management. Yeah, but so the natural conclusion that I draw from that is that one force there is market forces, right? So mm -hmm. like the companies that do get that right end up being the ones that succeed and are able to attract talent and retain talent. So that is a key ingredient. But how much do you think this side that we're talking about today, like the regulation part, needs to play a role. Do you think there needs to be more heavy-handed application of kind of these protections? Or do you think the shift naturally as companies get better at it will kind of help people get around shit like this? Well, I think the challenge is a lot of this is just exploitative yeah. stuff, right? It's like proper late-stage capitalism, get as much out, out of your workers as you can, right? And the challenge, of course, becomes when you blur the line between the workplace, where I don't like the idea of being permanently surveilled. But if I walk into an office building, I kind of assume that to some yep. degree they check when my badge is used, when my computer is on, maybe how I move around the building. You know, I don't like it, but I kind of understand it. You don't get to do that when I'm at home, mm -hmm. right? That's a very different... Um, and I think the, the expression they often use is the expectation of privacy. Mm -hmm. If I am sitting here, we're on video right now, even though we're recording a podcast. If my girlfriend walks behind me naked in my house, that is something that should be possible mm -hmm. in an office that generally doesn't happen, <laughs> right? But I this is not. where you yeah. get the annoying blurred lines, yeah. right? I can understand that maybe TechCrunch wants to record me whether I'm working or not. And I would have some thoughts about that, but right. I can kind of understand that. But the problem is you don't 
but in somebody's home, you don't control the whole environment. Yeah. And that's where it gets really fuzzy. And I think actually that's where I would welcome the law doing a little bit of like, hey, this is okay, that's not okay kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. It's, it's a kind of catch up. It's the catch up that always goes on with sort of regulation and legislation. I think it's a bit more maybe nuanced than it has been previously just because it is probably the first time in history where that work domicile has crossed over so 100% with the kind of personal domicile, right? I mean, excluding maybe serfdom or something, but that's a totally different story. So, Well, and I think actually we're probably both of us showing a little bit of privilege here. Absolutely. I haven't had that many jobs where I've been like monitored heavily, although they definitely exist. And I have a number of friends who work in professions where, you know, every minute is measured and if they take two minutes more then they're allowed in terms of bathroom breaks, they get a talking to. Mm-hmm. Tailor mm-hmm. marketing is one of those industries often because every minute counts, you know? Yeah. And I'm wondering if I'm certainly a little bit blind to how many industries this happens in, but I think that's why the laws exist to protect those people. Right. Yeah, for yeah. sure. All right. Well, I hope that they continue to protect those people. And I'm glad to see the, this result in this case. And thanks for telling us about it, Haya. Yeah. Thanks for inviting me. That's it for this week. Thanks for joining us. And remember to check out all the stories we talked about in this episode on TechCrunch.com. Also, TechCrunch Disrupt is coming up next week on October 18th through the 20th, live in San Francisco with guests including Serena Williams, Kevin Hart, Dylan Field, and more. You can still get your tickets. Use code TCPOD, all one word, to get 15% off passes, excluding the online and expo type. Be sure to check out all the other TC podcasts, Found, Equity, Chain Reaction, and the TechCrunch Live podcast. See you next week. The TechCrunch podcast is hosted by myself, managing editor Daryl Etherington. We're produced by Maggie Stamitz with editing by Kel Keller. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator. Alyssa Stringer leads audience development and Henry Pickovit manages TechCrunch's audio products. Thanks for listening and we'll be back next week. 